American is a complex of occasions, themselves a geometry of spatial nature. I have this sense that I am one with my skin. Plus this. Plus Welcome to Train Car Podcast, everybody. Today we have two very special guests, um, Ashley Bryant Phillips, the author of Sleepovers, and Scott McClanahan, the author of Crapalacha, The Sarah Book, and a bunch of others. Uh, welcome, y'all. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start by just telling you all this uh, because I knew you all would probably have thoughts on this, um, but I had the pleasure this week of stopping by a gas station that was, I believe, owned and operated by a church. Um, and there was like Ephesians on the gas pump whenever you like swipe your card. Uh, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty good. I was waiting for like the puns, like Jesus Christ is, is premium or something like to come uh -huh. up. But there were, there were stickers on the pump advertising the, the like small mega church and stuff. And I was just wondering if you've ever had a, the chance to frequent any operation maybe ran by a church or that you suspected ran by a church selling such things like, you know, gasoline or flaming hot Cheetos or anything like that. Are they doing that out in Beckley, Scott? <laughs> no, we just have like, I mean, you could probably find a gas station run by church if you were looking close enough, but we have like go marts in the state of West Virginia, which is like a locally owned West Virginia gas station mm. that used to have, their, their slogan was go for good, good times, go for Go-Mart, and it was a gopher. So, <laughs> no, no, like, religious organization or affiliation, but, uh, yeah, just good old West Virginia capitalism. <laughs> Evan, where was that? Yeah, that was in Marion. So, like, on my commute to Asheville, I mean, mm -hmm. sorry to Boone, uh, I stopped by and pump gas and it's right across from this pretty big church that's mm -hmm. like a you know it's got a school in it it's got a like a mega church it looks cool it looks like a cool church right but right across a, the street there's a gas station kind of crazy you reckon they're they're baptists they gotta be baptists it's like a non-denominational kind of oh uh, that's worse <laughs> yeah yeah they can't even pick a side there but uh non-denominationals yeah. are scary because you don't know where they're going to be coming from <laughs> Kind of like a libertarian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you go in? No, I just made it to the pump. I swiped and left. Uh, but I'm I'm gonna go back. Mm -hmm. I think I have to at this point for nothing more than the podcast. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Scott, were you raised like free will Baptist or? No, like I should probably mention. Yeah, I should probably Methodist. mention. Yeah, I should mention this so that we don't have any more non-denominational, like, <laughs> shit talk. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I was raised Church of Christ, which I guess is, like, technically non-denominational. And they were, like, proud of their non-denominational status. Mm -hmm. So did that mean y'all had, like, like, electric guitars in your service? No, no. So it was completely, like... Uh, well, I'm trying to think of like great new, uh, Dwight Yoakam grew up in, uh, the church of Christ 
Um, well, they had a break. I think, see, there's a church called the Disciples of Christ, and so they split sometime in the 60s or 70s. So you have Church of Christ as well as, like, Disciples of Christ. And I think it was over whether or not, you know, you could have instruments were, that were more than just acoustic instruments. But it, it was, it's all a cappella singing in our Church of Christ. Oh, that's, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so you just like pull out the hymn book and the song leader uh, lead it and uh, say, so, yeah. That's great. Have any of y'all ever been to a shape note singing thing? Uh-uh. I, I know what so. you're talking about, but I've never I've never been to one of those. Yeah, I've never been to one of them either. What's a I shape that, note? It's like shape a type note? of, yeah. Go ahead, yeah, Ashley. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Scott. No, I don't know. I'll, um it was just a, a type of singing that like developed, I think primarily like North Alabama and parts of Georgia as well. It's, mm -hmm. um, and this cold mountain soundtrack, if you know that movie, like, oh, yeah. and, um, some of that Harry Smith stuff on the Smithsonian folkways collections, all shape note. It's just a type. It's a type of musical notation, uh, for voices, but Ashley probably knows more than I do. I don't know. Well, I can just add on a little bit, but but yeah, basically, yeah. And they I do can... this. Yeah, yeah. They <laughs> they they um. That's great for podcasts. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, podcasts. yeah, yeah. A visual image. <laughs> Wait, we gotta. So Scott is taking his uh his forearm and banging it down as yeah. if it's a what would y'all say a gavel gavel yeah that's right yeah like a gavel um and what he's referencing is yeah from what i know about shape note singing um for every song that the church sings there is a song leader and it can be anybody um you can lead a song when you're 12 years old um as long as you know the song and you go up and you stand before the singers and you hold the time like that Mm. with um bringing your your hand down like you're you're the judge and you're bringing down the gavel um but the cool thing about shape note singing is that it's it's almost like really akin to like gregorian chant in a way yeah for like sure. the scale the the musical scale as far as the notes of like what you're allowed to do is really it's it's really pared back um but uh i did a trailer for crapalacha that uh i think that's a shape note song that we used as the music on that from like a decade or more ago whenever that was released oh my gosh it's cool because when you listen to the shape notes singing there's a lot of dissonance in it mm -hmm. but it that's but it cool. works and basically uh i don't know who the hell came up with it but they came up with it because so many people in rural America couldn't read actual music notes and they wanted to show them something simpler that they could learn so they could still sing in church and all that. Yeah. Um, and also so many rural communities, they didn't have like access to like a organ or a piano, you know, like, yeah. So that's what it came from. So all shape note singing is like uh, acapella and the notes are actually shapes. So they're like squares. I think there's four shapes. There's a square, a circle, a triangle, and I don't know what the other one is. <laughs> but yeah, 
Something like that. <laughs> That's all. So did you say how old it was? I think it's like, you know, back in the 19th century. It's like late 19th century stuff, I'm pretty sure. That's mm-hmm. crazy. That's cool. Yeah, when I lived in Raleigh, that's when I learned about it. And um, I saw that there was a gathering in the Triangle of Shape Note Singers once a month. But I was too scared to go do it by myself because I was just 19. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't sure if you had had it in you. That's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, at my church growing up, I was raised Free Will Baptist and it was like it was very much piano and then like the occasional like uh like bluegrass old time number that you would hear uh you know somebody the local mandolin player or whoever uh would play like old rugged cross for everybody and, hell yeah and that would be well, they kind sing, of... well they sing i come to the garden alone yeah i think so i'm trying to remember all those tracks it seemed like the same ones every sunday <laughs> I don't know. I was uh, just as I am. That's, yeah, that's, that's like, a good one. That's like an altar as, call song. Look, just as I am. That's basically a Jason Molina song. What do y'all think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that how they? Isn't isn't that how they ended Billy Graham Crusades back in the day with George Beverly Shea doing "Just as I Am"? He's a big really? bass. Yeah, I think he like was a big bass. He has a big bass voice. Yeah, I remember hearing that song at an altar call for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was like Billy Graham's like altar call. Call. I wish I had my phone, but I'm on my phone. <laughs> I would look this up. What are you trying to look up? I was going to look up George Beverly Shea's altar call song. <laughs> there are people right now, Billy Graham experts are like, that's not what it is. <laughs> yeah, we have a ton of Billy Graham experts in the listens. It'll be great. Don't worry. We're recording this actually right off of Billy Graham Highway in Nashville, North Carolina. So <laughs> That's great. Kevin, what were you? Did you sing did y'all know it was um, Doc Watson's 100th birthday? Not like when was it, Evan? Two days ago? Yeah, I believe it was. I believe it was uh Friday or yeah. Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody down here on the main street of Boone where they got a you know a little statue of him, they put a cute little paper cone party hat on his statue <laughs> <laughs> for his birthday. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. He um he's like a deep gap guy. So like right. Right between mm-hmm. Ash County and Boone. Do you are you a Doc Watson fan, Scott? I'm not really like a big Doc Watson fan. No, there's something about like the technicality of some of those players. Like I don't know, even some of that Earl Scruggs stuff. Stuff where it's just it just goes beyond. It's like math. It's like mathematics or something where I just can't mm-hmm. get into it. Like emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, you're a banjo picker. What do you think? I kind of feel I kind of feel the same way about like uh, those like uh, guitar super pickers. Uh, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I can't quite uh, reconcile like see Doc Watson was a great singer too, and there's something about the technicality of his guitar playing with the way that he sings that it just never quite it never quite clicked for me. Um, 
so yeah so you know yeah i hate doc watson he's my you know he's my least favorite musician obviously yeah overrated couldn't see either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's fucking yeah what was his deal yeah like when, I, when i'm looking for a guitar player i want one i want one with sight <laughs> damn are any y'all fans of the birds the birds i love the birds though yeah okay yeah. let me tell you something let me tell you let me tell you something all right yesterday i went to there's two laundromats in town so i go to the one that has a half a star more on google than the other ones <laughs> <laughs> but the one that i go to it's still overcrowded and it's still you know half the washers and half the dryers are like broke and the only way you know is because somebody's put colored tape over where you can put the coins in you know that's the only way you know they're broke and then there's always puddles in the floor from shit being broke but anyway i went there yesterday it was really crowded the most remarkable thing i saw there was a whole family in there and the daddy it was the daddy and the mama and the grandmama and then the daughter who was like 16 who was like on her phone no she was probably 14 she was on her phone the whole time and she had on heavy eyeliner and makeup and then the son he was probably like nine and the son who was nine kept making all these noises for attention and um I was in there trying to grade student short stories. Um, but this boy kept making noises and um what kind of noises? Time, what are we talking like, about? Like like mm, oh, mm. and every time the the family had uh, the mama and here's how crowded it was. The daughter was sitting in the mama's lap. And the grandmama was sitting next to the wife, or I don't know if I, I just made sense. Anyway, Actually, all... I thought we were going to talk about the birds. We're getting there. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. So, so that was their all... last name. So all this Bird. shit, all this, <laughs> all of this, all of this is happening, right? And every time this family's clothes dry, the little boy wants to unload it and when his daddy says he can't unload it he falls on the floor and starts whining like a four-year-old would so in my mind I'm already trying to assess this family and assess this child like like I'm some certified child psychologist or whatever <laughs> and in the midst of all this, there's nowhere for me to sit while my laundry is getting done, except this one seat opens up next to this fella. He's got long hair. He looks like an almond brother. And um, I'm grading my papers. And finally, he says, sorry to interrupt, but are you in a band around here? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um... I laughed you know I said no I'm not in a band and then you know I asked the most logical question back are you in a band you know figured that's the only reason he asked me and he said yeah I am um we're uh we're actually going to play a show coming up at uh 
at Legends, you know, I don't really like playing there, but it is the best room for sound and tone, and um, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to play a Birds cover set. Wow. And I and he and I said, oh yeah, what day? And he told me the date, and then he kind of told me more about this show, and he's like, yeah, me and my brother, we're gonna play a whole Birds album. We're gonna play my favorite album by the Birds. But my brother said we shouldn't do it because nobody's gonna know it. Nobody's gonna show up. <laughs> I said, all right, what's the album? Y'all guess what album he said? Sweetheart, Bird Maniacs. <laughs> He said, we're going to play Sweethearts of the Rodeo. And I said, that's the one everybody knows. Everybody yeah. knows that one. And he looked at me like scales come from his eyes. Like he couldn't <laughs> believe that that was such a pop, that, that, that people knew about that. So um, the, the same boy that pitched a fit on the floor plays in a bird's cover band or different, <laughs> different boys? <laughs> That was, yeah, that was disjointed. If that, if that was a short story, I would have separated those two parts by like a line, like a, a asterisk. <laughs> but here's where it comes back in, because then when we, when we were done talking about the birds, we started talking about how we couldn't believe that man brought his whole family into the crowded laundromat. And I learned his name was Sam, the fellow next to me, who looked like an almond brother. And he was like, yeah. He's like, if I had a family like that, I'd just tell them y'all go stay home when I go out to do the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. I don't know if Sam will end up listening to this, but if he does, um, I enjoyed meeting him. And I am gonna go to his birds cover show, yeah. and um, and yeah. You think he was like trying to recruit you? Like you in a band? You want to come sing? You look sing like a vocalist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't really know what was happening, um, <laughs> but when I looked up his band on Instagram, I saw that we kind of had some mutuals, and then I figured out that. He had gone to Greensboro School of um, Art. And some of the people from the Triangle that I used to run around with knew him. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. there's a good possibility that this podcast makes it back to him, I guess. Maybe he will listen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the whole purpose of this podcast. So you can get that singing gig. <laughs> Yeah, and now and now you can play the the name of his band is Daytona, so then you can play that song. That's perfect. Oh, that's actually yeah. a pretty good name. Mm -hmm. One time I met this guy at a record store in Beckley, and I can't remember what I bought, but it was something weird. And he was telling me about it, and he was, and I was like, "You know about this?" And he was like, "Yeah, I'm in a band." He's a real strange looking guy, and he goes, "Let me write down my email." And his email, I guess he was like a one man band, but his email was rock and roll octopus at hotmail.com. And I looked for that guy. I thought that was the greatest fucking name, like rock and roll octopus. It was, it was something. It was like hyper intelligent and postmodern about it at the same time. I'm sure his music was amazing. Like if you have a name, rock and roll octopus uh you're gonna play well so wait scott did he know who you were 
No, we started talking. I can't remember. I was buying a CD. It was back in the CD buying days. Mm. And it was something strange I can remember. And we like created a conversation. And I used to tell, like when I would leave the house, I, I would, uh, I think it was married to Sarah at the time. I was like, I'm going to go talk to Rock and Roll Octopus. <laughs> that, was what, that, was, that was what he was known as. And Chris, Chris got to know him. He's like, yeah, I know who Rock, because I was talking about him one day, and my friend Chris, who went to the same record store, he's like, I know who Rock and Roll Octopus is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I That's love that. That's Craig. I bet his name's Craig or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, probably. You, you were buying a CD, and he was like, here, uh, let me give you my email address. You can reach <laughs> man, me. So we can keep in touch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The rock and roll. Octopus. I have I have like a really country t sort of thing connected to the birds. Yeah, I was, watch I was watching this clip with Marty Stewart, and so oh Marty, my God. Marty Stewart's guitar and like hillbilly rock and all of like the hot Marty Stewart songs is Clarence. I think Clarence White is the guy's name. Is the same guitar that Clarence White is playing in the birds. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. And I bet you Marty Stewart uses his guitar for that exact reason. Yeah, because I think Clarence yeah. White got like hit by a bus or like he died fairly young. He was one of the, you know, the birds that didn't make it that long in that ever evolving band. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's wild. There's Marty Stewart of the, of, uh, the birds on Playboy After Dark in I guess the late sixties or the seventies. Have you seen this? Like uh, Yes. I know what you're talking about. There's also yeah. a clip. I don't know if you know Doug Som. I think's the guy's. You know the Texas oh, yeah, musician. The, the, the um, yeah, the Sir, Sir Douglas. Douglas Quintet. Yeah, that clip where he has his big like mutton chops and he's real oh, sweaty. You can tell that he's stinky in the clip, but he he's playing Mendocino. Oh man, he opens, I love that shit. I love yeah, and he opens he much. opens it. Yeah, he opens it up where he's like, thank you. Thank you for welcoming us to Los Angeles, all you groovy people putting out those groovy vibes. And then he like goes into the song, and it's amazing. Like it's amazing. Yeah, and those videos are really cool because they because the bands get to have like a really awkward little chat with Hugh Hefner, right? Before. <laughs> and right. Hugh Hefner is this just obvious kind of like just absolute like creepy bag of shit. Um, then. Saying to you know Roger McGuinn of the Birds, I so you know everybody is kind of uh, growing their hair a little bit down down the ears these days. <laughs> like they're like the biggest the biggest thing in pop rock on the planet, and that's that's what he that's what he wants to talk to him about. But then they get up on stage and the, and they sound killer. Um, and Clarence White is in the band for that video that I'm thinking of. With I mean, for what album? Do you know what albums Clarence White was on? I'm not really sure. I mean, I I mean, I think he's. It sounds like it's him on Sweetheart of the Rodeo. I would say I think so because I think it might because I think he's through like Sweetheart of the Rodeo and like Ballad Easy Rider. I think he's on that. It's that it's that that B bender, you know. Um, yeah. Tel Telecaster whammy bar sound that you can hear, but I mean, I, I guess I make it funny Hugh Hefner for for um, going after their hair, but I just have to say that in that video. Clarence White has got the most, like the best hair helmet of anybody who who anybody who made it through the '60s, and he's, you know, they all look great. You know, they're all kind of wearing like they kind of look like 
they look like they're wearing like military officer uniforms or something and oh that's great yeah it's funny watching people dance in those videos too because it's like gorgeous like movie star looking people who start like getting up and like doing very 60s type dances (laughs) oh my gosh well, not to switch gears away from uh, from this, but uh, I, I thought was, this was a birds podcast. This this is exactly what we came here. No, no. That I was wanted to know y'all's hot takes. I wanted to know y'all's hot takes on Graham Parsons. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Just real quick, I want to know. I, I I I genuinely want to know what y'all think about him. I'm a fan. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, Evan, you're a fan. Yeah, I like Graham Parsons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm I a casual. Listened I listen to. I'm a casual. I'm a casual Parsons fan. I wouldn't put him like in my heavy rotation, but yeah, it's yeah. it's not it's not my favorite era of country music, um, but I, I like I like some of his stuff. Yeah, I like the I like the Flying Burrito Brothers albums. Yeah, I can't I can't stand Graham Parsons solo albums. I have a funny story though. When you're growing up as a young boy. And the mountains of southern West Virginia, sometimes you get confused. You hear this name, Graham Parsons, on like Nashville Now or something. And I got Graham Parsons confused with Graham Nash. Oh, no. And so I bought Graham Nash's, I think it's an album called Songs for Beginners, which is an amazing album. Like it's it's sort of a, it's like the only great Graham Nash like thing that he ever did. Um, Yeah, it's it's an amazing record. I like was under the assumption for like a year or two that Graham Nash was Graham Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> so one day I discovered that was not true. And then of course I discovered uh, Graham Parsons. It's weird, like pre-internet stuff where you would hear something and then you would go. I also did that with Tom Waits. I heard Bon Jovi on VH1 talking about Tom Waits. This is like probably. <laughs> this is like. This is like circa not like 1989 or something. Bon Jovi. Yeah, Bon Jovi. It was it was like some VH1 crappy show where Bon Jovi's talking about his five like inspirations, and Tom Waits was one of them. Mm-hmm. But I thought that Tom Waits was Buster Poindexter. <laughs> you know, the hot, hot, hot guy from the New York Dolls, like that song. So I was I was under that assumption. So I was like wrong about who Tom Waits was for like a year or two as well as I'm discovering all this great David Johansson uh, music before I finally realized that Tom Waits was uh, was different. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I do remember buying the Graham Parsons. It was the Nice Price CD, I believe, uh-huh. at, at Camelot Music. So I would have been like in like eleventh grade or twelfth grade, mm-hmm. and it was the two solo albums, but they were both on the same CD. And I came home and I remember playing it, and I was like, "What is this?" Because it's really produced. And like the song, the band's like really tight. You can feel that it has like all of these overdubs on it. And I can remember thinking like, what is this shit? And so I had a bad, once I was introduced to Graham Parsons, I had a bad like early introduction to Graham Parsons, I think. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like his, um, I like the Flying Burrito Brothers stuff. Mm-hmm. I like his duets with Amy Lou Harris. Mm-hmm. I don't really Those like 
I don't really like her by herself, which is a hot take, but I like her duets. I think it's something about <clears throat> harmonies. I like I like harmonies. Um but I can listen to his music, but I can't ever get over the fact that he came from super wealthy parents. Same thing with Tones Van Zant. Yeah, he had a whole damn uh town named after him in Colorado, yeah. his family, right? Yeah. See, that doesn't bother me, I don't think. But I know what I know what you're talking about. It's sort of like like George Jones is cool. Like you don't need someone in tur as you don't need like a gateway drug to enjoy George Jones, which is sort yeah. of the way that Graham Parson kind of fits in some ways within the culture, I think. Yeah. yeah. What's the gateway to Graham Parson? Well, obviously the maybe the birds or All those, yeah. See, Bob uh, Dylan thought that Gene Clark was like one of the greatest songwriters of all time. You know, he wrote a lot of those early bird songs. I don't really think that's the birds on those early albums. I think those are all uh, studio guys. That's all Wrecking Crew yeah, guys. That's what I was going to say. The bird yeah. stuff, which is also strange to think about, you know, turn, 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 and it's not even the birds who are playing on it. Damn. That's wild. I was going to ask, because actually, this is completely off topic, but it just one thing that you guys are talking about made me think about just like consuming media and Ashley told me that she introduced you Scott to uh I survived oh yeah yeah I survived it's a great it's a, it's a great great show I love it Kevin do you know it too it's uh what like stories of people who got too far out to sea on a fucking raft or whatever and exactly and they had to eat part of their leg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've not I've not seen it, but I, I feel like Kevin. I, I'm not gonna lie, Kevin. There was one episode uh when Ashley was here, she was like, I gotta show you this. Like this is something <laughs> that I just I think you'll really like I think it'll speak to you. And uh it's all on YouTube as far as I know, or it was like a few months ago when we watched yes, it. Yes, and it's free. Scott, I told you about it this one. Wait, Evan, are you going to... Wait, I'll let you keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, the... Uh, there's one that... The one that we watched... It Well, it's like intercut, right? With, like, three stories per episode, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. And the one that I remember was set in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, like, right outside of Pittsburgh. And it was the, the miner that was, like, caught in a flooded mine. That was one that was crazy. Oh, I'm remembering all the other ones now, too. There was like a home defense story in Nashville, Tennessee, right? No, she, her name was Alga, and she was in Oklahoma, and she was the, yes. she was the church lady Yes. who, who um, a fella came out to her house to like do some yard work, and he ended up trying to kill her, and he threw her in the boot of her own car. Yeah, and wasn't there, wasn't there one, too, where... Uh, Lynn like, Coya, Lynn Coya outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking. The the uh, the uh, he walked in and somebody had had entered his property and he had to like take his gun out, right? And he was like, he was real tore up about this. That yeah, he, he was, to, he yeah. was. And he said that when, uh, yeah, God, that that's such a good episode. Everybody who's listening right now, go to YouTube and just type in the the search bar. I survived church handyman and this episode will come up. Yeah, we'll it's, put it in the show notes. <laughs> it, it's worthy. It's incredible. Scott, did I tell y'all about that one? 
Yeah, I think so. We've we've watched so many of them. Like all those sound familiar, but they start kind of running together. I think after after you've seen so after you've seen so many of them. But the A and E Network that was kind of during their golden their golden period. Was it an A and E show? Yeah, I feel like it was. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. But it had to be produced on like hundred and fifty dollars an episode, right? Like it was yeah. really low. <laughs> I mean. It's in, it's incredible. I mean, it almost has this kind of like, maybe this is far reaching, but there's a sprinkle of tut, studs turkle in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there yeah. is a kind of like oral history type aspect to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But all about like almost getting beat to death with a hammer. Like, 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 like Studs Turkle was writing about a book called "Almost Getting Beat to Death with a Hammer." It would, it would definitely fulfill that mission. Yeah, it's somehow longer than working. It's like yeah. six hundred pages. Yeah, all the people who got. That's funny. I was wondering, yeah, if it was like the oral history part that you guys like, or if you're just like, you know, sadistic like I am and watch it for. I think it depends on the narrator like sometimes the people telling the stories they can just like fucking tell a story mm-hmm. and then there are other folks you can tell that they just they can't really tell their story that well and sometimes i'll lose interest in them but some of them are amazing like, yeah yeah some of them um i really do like when i'm listening to what they're telling um thinking about all right where are their emotions when they're telling this you know like are they making a joke out of this because what they just said hurt them to their core and for survival mode to tell this story they have to keep moving like i don't Mm -hmm. know it's 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 fascinating like for example in the episode that where the coal miners stuck in the flooded shaft um he refers to uh everybody all the men trapped in there with him i think there's like maybe eight or 12 of them he refers to them every time he says their name he says their first and last name there's like this formality to it as if he's trying to distance himself you know from the event yeah yeah it made me think about both y'all's work just because i was I was watching it whenever we watched it, and then I watched it a couple times after you left. Um, and I was wondering, like, how much of this is true, and how much of this is like, do you feel like producers are being like, no, like you gotta, you gotta fabricate a little bit here just for the sake of the audience? And I, I was wondering because both of you write about, uh, you know, fictional stuff, non-fictional stuff mixed together, and uh, yeah just something along those lines that remind me of your work this is the oh. casual literary question yeah yeah there's <laughs> one per episode so i was about gotta... to bring i was about to start talking about ghost adventures but... <laughs> actually no hang on i am going to talk about ghost adventures i just wanted to say because i've been trying to circle back to graham parsons for a couple minutes now <laughs> i just want to talk you know. about the birds too kevin well, like let's just let's just dominate this the, thing the, and go the, with it the ghost adventures right if, if for, who, for whoever hasn't seen it that's where like this group of like ed hardy faux hawk bros go to various locations and yell at ghosts and uh they go to the joshua tree inn where uh, graham parsons died so uh, oh and they're trying to look for him yeah and there's like they like um they like um convene with the guy who was uh 
supposed to be in charge of disposing his body or something. Yeah, Phil Kaufman. Yeah, Phil Kaufman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, have you ever there's see they made a film based uh, around Phil Kaufman with Johnny Knoxville. There's a oh, there's wow. <laughs> Yeah, Johnny Knoxville stars as Phil Kaufman. But there's this wonderful documentary that like the Parsons family, I think his his daughter and some folks like produced and they tell the story from the other point of view, which is the family's point of view. And it is, it just like, you realize like, oh my God, that would be so awful mm -hmm. if that happened to your brother. If some drug crazed dude steals your brother's body and takes him up into the, into the mountains of Joshua Tree to burn his corpse. And that's also part, they go into it like, he's not all, it's not, you have your image of like Graham Parsons, like going up and he joins the stars and, you know, his ashes all, but like, it's like a partially burned corpse that they're like leaving, like leaving out in the desert. God damn. Yeah, not much romantic <laughs> about that. Yeah. Oh, partially burned old Graham Parsons. He was young too. Yeah, no, he was. Little, he still had youth in his cheeks. <laughs> I don't know. He had that. He's had that monkey on his back. Oh, he had that that heroin addiction. He didn't have. He didn't have long anyway because he was all bloated towards the end too. Yeah, he didn't like, look well. It's not yeah. like beautiful, like flying burrito brothers, Graham Parsons. He's kind of like heavy, and he's got that like kind of junky bloat to his to his mm -hmm. face. Bless his heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Has anybody been to Joshua Tree? I've no. never been, no. I would love to go. Uh, yeah. You guys ever listen to Desert Oracle? That's a he's he's a writer and a Ken Lane is a writer and a podcaster based out of Joshua Tree, and he does these like really weird and kind of oddly menacing uh, podcasts where it actually goes out live on the radio, um, and uh, it's all like. Uh, it's part like UFO lore and just sort of like local history of the desert. And it's got great soundscapes and everything on it. Um, always wanted to go out there though. Seems really cool. Yeah. yeah. I've always wanted to go too, but you Sorry. broke the rule there, Kevin, you're not supposed to promote any other podcasts on our podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's just, this has been no other podcast. This has been a fucking 40 minute commercial for the bird. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do they do they play? I wonder if they still play. I mean, are who's they've had so many different. I mean, Roger McGuinn is probably still alive. We're still talking about the fucking birds. <laughs> well, wait, but wait. Well, what happened? What happened on the Ghost Hunters? The, it's like the same thing that happens on on the every episode, which is like they go in there with these gizmos. They like record a silent room, and then they get the recording back, and there's a little hiss of like it's a ghost talking or whatever um and then they like talk to um bill kaufman about his journey with the disposal of graham parson's body and it's very uh you know it's like completely devoid of any kind of like uh, pathos or depth it's it's like it's like the worst kind of uh travel channel garbage um so every episode is the same and um you know it's super hypnotic for that reason um, so nothing really they just kind of uh ran over the same old ground that lots of other people have you know actually tried to you know be journalistic about um but yeah i think that the, the ghost of graham parsons probably haunts the joshua tree hotel i'm convinced of it after watching you know that episode you know. 
Um, I feel like I feel like ghosts linger around when there's been some like some kind of like tomfoolery with their death, you know. Mm-hmm. Or either they went out really angry. Like yeah. I was just reading today. I, I I don't remember who the hell his name was, and that's awful because he died such a tremendous, magnificent death, but from what I gather, David, David, are you talking about David Crosby from the birds? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop. I don't know. <laughs> no, I was actually talking about Scott. You might even know who this is. Who was the Russian astronaut? Who? Yuri Gagarin? Maybe. He knew. He's the Sputnik guy, but I don't, I don't know if he, yeah, he, yeah, I think he did die fairly young. Well, he knew, apparently, well, this story I was reading, this fella, it was early on in the space exploration, you know, so it was a race between us and Russia, us as in America and Russia, and, um. Well, what happened? Did he die? What happened to him? Let me tell you, this guy he um he had been in like the astronaut like community for a while you know like he was like a he was like an expert and they had brought this new fella on and everybody loved him and they all were like we're going to protect you you're our best little fella you're our little little bud (laughs) so big dude who'd been there for a while he heard I mean, and everybody knew, everybody knew that that this new uh, space shuttle they built was a piece of shit. And everybody knew when it went up, it was going to fall to pieces. And so they were like, all right, new kid on the block, we're going to put you in there. And this is how the story goes. The old dude who was the legend, who was the OG, he stepped in and he said, no. You can't do that to him. He's brand new. We said, we, we told him we were going to protect him. Send me up. And apparently, you know, it all went, it all went according to plan. Like spaceship went up. When it started coming back down, it started to literally fall apart. And, um, his last words that are recorded were picked up from like uh, American radios, and the and it was it's just him cursing all the men who built the piece of shit uh, spaceship, um, who sent them up there, you know, like for the sake of the the race, you know, mm-hmm. of, of of beating beating America, and. Um, when he came down like his his body had just it just like melted it it just like melted it was like a mass of like melted bones and whatever anyway does anybody know the story anybody know this (laughs) name maybe we should rebrand this podcast as like an anti-communism podcast i was gonna say i really i always really like the part the part of armageddon where they get up to the russian space station and the russian space station is like a total piece of shit um it's like 
But anyway, wait, wait, wait. I still can keep going. Let's go back. Scott, do you think those people on I Survive, do you think the producers are prodding some of them to set to to make some shit up? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure that they probably follow some sort of format. Uh, there there may be people who come in and they just give them so much that they immediately tell a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. But I'm sure a lot of times there there has to probably be some sort of prodding with with an individual to get them to kind of fit into the format or right. to fit into you know from probably a production aspect they're probably thinking like we have a minute 30 here and then we're going to show our images and then we'll come back for you know i don't know if they would they would probably do most of that in the editing room but yeah i'm sure that there's probably some of that that's taken place i wonder too if part of um the process of getting on the show um is to submit yourself telling the story yeah. it's like them would... off but mm -hmm. you almost got beat to death with a hammer <laughs> yeah. maybe the moth would be a better show if there were more stories about almost getting beat to death with a hammer <laughs> <laughs> but you can tell like just from the ones that i've seen like the one the guys or the or the ladies who like work jobs where they're riffing, like talking with people all day. They're like have a knack for telling those stories. It seems. Oh like, hell you know yeah. I mean? yeah! Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah! Yeah. Do you, uh, I was gonna add, I was gonna tee up like another literary question that just hit me like uh -huh. while while we're doing it. Uh, but Can is we there run in the other direction? Yeah, you? yeah. Let's. Uh, no, no. It's cool. I was uh, I was wondering though, like. You're running away from the anti-communist rebrand. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm, I'm embracing full communism here with this next question. Um, uh, is there any, uh, are there any like things that uh, maybe like annoy you that people compare or associate your work with? I was thinking about this recently um, myself. That's a good question. But I was just wondering with, with you folks, um, you know, working in the in the different kinds of maybe genre blurring aspects that you all do i was just wondering if there's any kind of associations or anything that irk you maybe don't piss you off or that you hate but just you're like either tired of talking about it or you could just hate it i don't know scott i'd love to hear oh i don't i mean i think i've like gotten older and like more chilled about people's like reaction to my books because i mean in some ways some you know, when I was like writing things, it was like a surprise when I realized that people were actually reading them. Um, so there was, even though that sounds so stupid, but like I really, <laughs> I really went through like a process like, oh my God, like people can actually read that now. But typically the things that, I don't know, it's like you're sitting at a bar with him and he's just telling you this story and he's your closest friend. Like that's like a good read stereotypical Scott McClanahan review mm -hmm. that I usually get. That always is, always annoys me. It's weird when like the positive type of reviews annoy you more so than maybe even a negative type review but just because they're trying to fit it into some angle that they're working from for this particular story there was a goodreads review this has been like six months ago and it's one of the best reviews i ever got it was a negative review <laughs> somebody just said he there are way too many people laughing in these chapters i realized i was like oh that's excellent like i should probably cut out the word 
with my Cassavetti's like nervous laughing that I always have happening in my stories. Maybe they would be more effective if I eliminated the word laugh <laughs> or also giggled. I do that a lot. I do that a lot of my stories where I say giggled. Somebody giggled. My wife always yells at me for that when I put like giggled into it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't. It doesn't really bother me. I mean, at this point in time, like, I, why would you care? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the world has enough problems, let alone uh, my little silly world of the fictions that I make. So, speaking yeah. of speaking of giggled, I love getting tickled. I like tickled. Tickled. Do you have word. tickled? Do you have tickled a lot in sleepovers? I don't think I. I don't think I have it once. <laughs> you need to use that. That might yeah. be like I a, do. New, a, a new path forward if you get in touch with like. <laughs> The tickled nature of uh, that word. <laughs> yeah, that's just the line. The character tickled. got got tickled. That's all you need to say. Well, and then one thing on I will and... say, I felt like I expended so much like energy of not being like lumped together with like regional writing or particular like geography. And here it is, like twelve, thirteen years later, and that's just kind of the that's just kind of the way it is. Like I'm from West Virginia. I'm writing about West Virginia. People are going to comment uh, up, up on that. But I did. I spent like a lot of energy early on where where I wanted to make sure that I was part of this over here rather than rather than this. You all know the type stuff type of stuff I'm talking about. You know, just like local local color type, regional type type fiction. And you're so powerless over. Yeah. people's perceptions of things like you just you just are you're just kind of powerless over it and i think i've kind of accepted that but this is fascinating for me to hear because it sounds like i mean basically what you're saying scott is you you were aware of people like jane ann phillips oh yeah and i mean crap for instance i'm shocked that i got this response but like but like I was telling them, don't include me within this community. <laughs> this community. I tried to be as insulting as I possibly could. And then, you know, you still, you can't, you can't do anything. You know, you can't do anything about it. You're still, and Jane Ann Phillips is one of the, I love Jane Ann Phillips. Like I love her work. You know, her work's meant, meant a lot to me. I love, um, I love her and I love, I love Breeze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of them other ones though. Yeah, and Breeze, maybe that's another thing too. Like I always get like the like pancake stuff. And I like like Trilobites is like a perfect story. Like it's truly yeah, I think so too. Uh, he wrote one perfect story. Um but he died so young. The uh, mm-hmm. somebody published something in book form a year or two ago when that uh, uh that new uh uh library of america book came out and that's what they're saying yeah. you know he's, he's a young writer who was incredibly promising and wrote like a little mini masterpiece but he died he, he died young you know and he wasn't able to grow uh past that point and also too like with like pancake there's so many of those yeah that feels like kind of capital l literature to me you know he's kind of working in a different vein that's you know third person and is growing out of you know american realism and naturalism and you know that that I wasn't interested in and like at all. Like I was. But, oh, but I, you were, but you were aware of him, and you had read him when you were writing your stuff and like trying to land your work. Yeah, for sure. And maybe almost kind of, and not to sound like anxiety of influence type 
but I think that's what writers kind of almost like kind of reacting against it. You know, yeah. this, mm. this great West Virginia writer, like seeing if I could spit in his, you know, spit in his face a little bit, you know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and in, in, in some ways. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting the way, and I'm sure that, you know, there's going to be some kid right now uh, and she's, you know, in Charleston, she's going to do the same thing to me or, Misha Marin or, you know, Stephen Dunn or, or whoever, you know, they're going to, there's going to be that reaction, uh, you know, back to people who've been making work for, you know, past 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Making stories. I hate that, like making work type BS like stuff. Yeah. I agree with that too. I think it does feel like capital L literature in some moments too. It takes me back to like what you were saying about like Doc Watson or those real technical musicians that are almost like, follow Mm -hmm. not even really a formula but like it's almost like every phrase every word has some sort of attention given to it that's for sure you know and he's and he's in a he's in a workshop process too where you still had major market magazines that were publishing fiction on a monthly you know or bi-weekly you know basis and so you know it it fits it fits in it fits into that to a certain Mm -hmm. extent there's a story his though i think it's called the salvation of me that's kind of like a wild first person west virginia kind of voice and i know that there was a novel manuscript that uh giancarlo de trapano he had a cousin who went to uva and she found it in the uva library there uh that i guess he'd been tinkering with and working on for a period of time and i'm almost positive maybe i'm wrong it's been a while since i've uh since i've thought about this but i'm pretty sure that was a first person manuscript though and where the voice was kind of coming out you know a little bit wilder uh, and so that's neat you know if anything's happened with that i think part of there's an excerpt in that new library of america i think it's so like incomplete though that you know you can't really i mean there's people who know breeze pang i don't you know i've just read what read that you know book of short stories like everybody else has just you know a couple of times i mean there's there's going to be breeze pancake experts just like Billy Graham experts who are going to come on here and they're going to talk about it. I don't know anything about Billy Graham. I meant to tell you, we got the interns on that and it was uh, as I just as I am. So, okay. oh, wow. yeah. the intern. Yeah, I got the interns on it. Um, I can actually, always remembered like Johnny and June would be on Billy Graham doing doing songs on there. George Beverly Shea had like great white hair, I could think, you know. Yeah, yeah. What a. What a figure. What about and you, Ashley? Is there anything that, like, really irks you that, like, maybe people associate your work with? Um, uh, one thing that's, well, one thing that surprised me was... That's a generous way of framing it. I like that. <laughs> that surprised me, you know? One thing that surprised <laughs> me was folks talking about the violence. Hmm in my work and I've never thought about myself as a violent person or someone who obsesses over violence or um but you know it was just another one of those kind of like um learning lessons that I I still haven't learned yet as an adult that I guess I slash I assume that more rural slash more impoverished uh areas especially when there's um 
abuse, you know, whether it be physical, drug, uh, let's just throw in religion, <laughs> religion, high religions involved too. If all of that is happening, maybe that makes your community more accustomed to violence. I don't know. All I know is that, like, I wanted to understand why these things happened back home and, and, and all of the acts of violence that are in my collection, they really did happen in mm -hmm. real life. You know, that they really did happen. Um, like in the story, Earth to Amy, when the narrator says my cousin found Rami dead at the stop sign, he'd been killed by three boys who were under the age of 18. That's true for me. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, the violence. And then the other thing as far as like um, comparing to like another writer, uh, I think because, uh, well, first of all, like there's not a lot. Well, I mean, First of all, there's a wealth of North Carolina writers. North Carolina is uh, what they like to call it the writingest state or something. Um, We're going to try and uh, push back against that on the podcast. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of writers in North Carolina, but there's not a lot of from, not a lot like from, from my area. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, akin to scott people would automatically like throw me into like this west virginia um canon because i'm a woman and because i write about hard and or violent topics when people would review my work it immediately went to flannery o'connor yeah you know yeah and i am not a flannery scholar um i uh i've only read a couple of short stories that i really really love this is a hot take but i feel like she came to this earth to write um um i've had a little bit of moonshines i can't remember the name <laughs> good country people <laughs> no the other one good man's hard to find that one good man's hard to find if she came to the if she came to this earth and was born in Georgia and that's the only thing she had to write in this whole world, that's all she needed to give us. That's that's an incredible short story. Mm -hmm. I love that short story. A little um, long. It, oh, that's what I was gonna say. That's what was always <laughs> bothering me about Flannery O'Connor. It's because you read and you're like, oh my god, this thing goes on for another twenty five pages. <laughs> well, here's the other, all right, all right. Too, so y'all open me up to here's my hot take of Flannery. Okay. One of the reasons why it would bother me that people would um, always bring up her name when reviewing my stories is I feel like she uses her characters like Sims, like the video <laughs> game. Like she would be the type of Sims player who would, you know, lovingly spend a very long damn time picking out their outfits and names and making sure it was an important name that meant something, you know? And then as soon as she like plopped them into the house, she would build them a swimming pool and then tell them to go swim in the swimming pool and then take the swimming pool ladder out and watch them swim to death and, and die. 
I feel like that's how Flannery O'Connor would play The Sims. That was not me in The Sims. <laughs> and I played The Sims. I was I The Sims with like emphasis on compassion. Exactly. It doesn't really matter what doesn't really matter what they're wearing as long as there's there's you're not just doing that thing where you put them in a closet and let them starve to death. Hell no! If they're <laughs> if if they're if you know because on The Sims. I think when you got to sims 2 you could make them have life goals yeah and if my sims life goal was to was family and they wanted to have 10 children that's what i wanted them to do and i did i worked my hardest worked <laughs> my hardest to get it for yeah. that i don't think it's a great comparison either because i think when people say like the talking about the southern gothic thing like uh you feel that like i feel that like uh, you can call it whatever you want but i feel that heaviness hanging over flannery o'connor's work and also like it's long and it just keeps going and going and and um then when you get to the end of it something so horrible happens and there's horrible things that happen along the way and it pages and pages and yeah i mean i don't think yeah it doesn't feel like a great comparison because i think that your work definitely is you know it's not it doesn't have like that same kind of heaviness or that feeling of being like it's uh you know been allowed to just stray on for pages and pages it's just not what it does so mm -hmm. yeah i but i could totally see where the where the comparison would come from um it's because of the content yeah and also yeah and just just yeah writing about uh you know difficult to digest subjects in a southern voice um, and being a woman and then they're like yeah. who's another woman who writes hardcore short stories yeah Connor. i kind of i kind of see two things here i think this similar thing has happened between you and scott here it's that when people talk about people's work i think they only have a like a certain name bank of people that they can draw from that have yeah. somewhat like contributed to some sort of style or regional narrative and that's the other thing is i think i often struggle with people who are like like flannery o'connor who like everybody everybody knows but also i wonder how their work fits into also those like kind of stupid negative dumb stereotypes of narratives about certain places and if that is because on one hand, I see Flannery O'Connor's characters as like archetypes, right, of all these people that you could potentially meet in this area. But at the same time, yes. on the other hand, I wonder how generous that is to the overall narrative that that kind of creates, because it does seem to buy in to a larger narrative that does seem to kind of reside these people in these regions to those archetypes and saying they can never be nothing outside of those archetypes they are stuck in that swimming pool without the mm -hmm. ladder you know what i mm -hmm. mean mm -hmm. um so i think i think kind of i see both of those things happening a little bit yeah i see her as using her characters as pawns yeah as a bigger game that she's trying to show the reader whereas you know i'm ultimately more drawn to character and it's not about the game that I'm trying to show the reader. It's about the the, the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Where the are we at? Yeah. Where are we at in this? Just a real quick. Uh, where are we at in this group with uh, with Crumb with Lee Maynard? Because that's the name that's that's kind of been right at the front of my mind the whole time we've been talking about like uh, 
Ashley might not have read Lee Maynard. Have you heard of Lee Maynard, Ashley? Wait, is he the guy who did the comics? Uh, <laughs> he may have. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what kind of comics. Um, he wrote. He wrote Chrome. Yeah, he wrote this book called Chrome. And then what's the other one? Screaming it. with the Cannibals or something. I think was the one that WVU Press put out. Yeah, I remember that one, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, you might have made a very West Virginia centric comment there. Uh, it just occurs. From my own opinion, I remember being really ex- I can't remember when Crumb came out, but I was young and I can remember it got reviewed in the Register Herald, like the local little Beckley paper. And like books were never like reviewed in the Register Herald. And so there, there was always something that uh, that I found appealing. Just a, a, I met him one time in, in Pittsburgh. Um, at a reading that he was doing with Chuck Kinder, and he was just a super nice, a super nice guy. I never really did. Are you a Crumb fan? I never really liked Crumb though. Like I, I, I personally really, really loved it, but um, I, I think that I just have like a really, I think it, it appealed to my very crass sense of humor. Um, yeah, I really liked all of the gross stuff in it, but I actually thought there were some moments in it that were genuinely uh pretty touching i thought like some of the depictions of friendships between boys um were um you know actually pretty moving and then there was some stuff where it's just um so gross that i can't even get my mind around it but i i thought of it just because there are aspects of crapalacha that reminded me of it just in terms of how candid both of those books are yeah, for uh, sure. but also in terms of like a mixed reception when they came out um, that, you know, there are people saying in both cases, like, like, how, how could you say that? And then other people saying, thank you for saying that. Yeah, and of course. Yeah. Kind of wondered, yeah. I kind of wondered if, if that was in any way, if, if his work or if Crumb in particular was in some way significant to your thinking about your own Yeah. Work. I mean, it's interesting. I would say not like, um, I don't think that I read Crumb until like much later, maybe even in like graduate school before I was able able to find a copy at the Cabell County Public Library. But I think that that reaction is like sort of sort of kind of par for the course. There's this story that I always use um, of Eugene Hutz from uh, Gogol Bordello, and he's <laughs> and he is uh, talking about his uncle. And so his uncle is like part Romany and like his uncle's bitching and complaining about how people like always stereotype the Romany people and call them gypsies and all those things. And uh, then he goes out to his uncle's car and it's just like full of like old fast food like bags and sort of trash. And Eugene Hutz is like, man, this car is filthy. And his uncle's like, it's a Romany car. (laughs) (laughs) This is what our people are about. Um, And so there's like, there's always an element, I think, of uh, of that sort of reaction that I had with Crapalacha that I've had with, well, I mean, I guess the Sarah book is sort of like, I've kind of got around that where I wasn't directly addressing the place uh, in the, in the work. Um, I I think it's just, it's just kind of a a typical way to kind of think about something, you know. There's always going to be that person who's like, "Oh, it's shit," you know, "Ah, it's shit." 
and you realize that they don't even really know necessarily what they're talking about. It's just that they, that's their particular like take on the book. They may have not even read the book, but they have the particular, you know, in perception uh, about something. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, there's a parallel there for sure. And if you're going to write about West Virginia, for instance, you know, you're going to have to deal with the duality of that West Virginia thing. Yeah. I think I think both Scott you Scott you and Ashley do something that I think the reason why your work is important to people is because it does sort of find a way in the middle where like Ashley you were saying about people's being taken aback by the violence in your writing um, and just the same with like a lot of the themes that comes up in Scott's work where you have to be able to talk about like you don't you don't you you can't sanitize what's actually happening in those places but like how do you actually tell those stories with you know compassion as opposed to just kind of capitalizing on people's suffering yeah. work and it's really easy to kind of swing to either side of the spectrum where it's like nothing bad ever happens here it's really <laughs> nice it's beautiful yeah, yeah there's 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 yeah. an element, especially within the Appalachian literature community, that, that would make you believe that this is a wonderful progressive paradise uh, where everyone is forward thinking. And that's just not the, that's just not the case. Mm -mm. Um, I mean, there is that here. Right. Mm -hmm. There are the sure. that part of the, you know, the, the place that is that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Go ahead. Ashley. No, I was <laughs> going to say God, God bless the pockets. You know, the, those 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 pockets where progressive forward thinking is happening in the communities that need it the most, those are the folks that need uh, the most support. Um, yeah, I guess my that. thing's always been I've stayed here like I teach at a community college. I've been teaching at that community college for 20 years and I can tell you about the health of the place. Like I put my hand to the heartbeat every like every single day. So I've always kind of had that. I've kind of taken that point of view as well of like, well, someone moves away and, or they, they go off to, you know, university or graduate school. And then they have a, a very, very different, very different, you know, point of point of view there. So, yeah, I don't know. Man, I want to say something, but like, for instance, in Beckley, I had a bullet come through this window two years ago. Uh, a month ago, there was a poor woman who was discovered in the woods right behind this house. You know, my best friend in high school, his sister, speaking about the hammer, she <laughs> is accused of beating somebody to death in my hometown, right? And right now, it appears as if, you know, appears as if she's, you know, had some meth, meth issues, you know? So yeah, there's like, there's a reality and it's in my student essays. Like there's a reality to folks' lives that if you were to project it to the culture of the, as the whole, and I get every bit as upset with those things as well, that it does make it seem stereotypical and cliched, which is what I was interested in, you know, when I was publishing some of those books in 2012 and 2013 was to mess around mm -hmm. uh, with, with that stereotype. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, fa it's kind of fascinating. I mean, I knew that it was like, oh, I can remember Vice Magazine contacting me in 2016 to write like about Trump in relationship to Appalachia, you know, crap like that, where it's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Um, 
and it's always disturbing when you start realizing that you're being used as exactly. yeah it's fine when the family's talking amongst <laughs> amongst themselves right but when you're when your voice is also being used um for for you know a conversation that you want no part in you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah no i yeah <laughs> i feel that Part of me also feels like my work, half of a a responsibility, or I mean, maybe it's because I'm young. I feel like maybe, you know, if my work were to reach a NPR voter who's never once stepped inside a food line, um, if my work could reach them, maybe the next time they uh, did happen to find themselves in urgent care and they were standing next to someone who looked like poor white trash or redneck rather than immediately resulting to that in their heads and thinking they're, you know, Trump supporters, they could think something else like, oh, maybe they're struggling with addiction. Oh, maybe they saw their daddy get killed in front of them and they were six maybe maybe there's some other maybe there's some other story here that's i feel like that's a really like hopeful um thought but um i do i I do have that hope (laughs) that maybe 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 just maybe a little bit just a little bit my work could could do that attempt to bridge some sort of uh some sort of the crazy gap that we have here but yeah yeah and see i'm of like of the mind like i don't even care about those folks i could care less about like changing somebody's mind and mm-hmm. and which i think is a wonderful thing i'm not i'm not like cr- critiquing it at all actually it's i know probably exactly still because mean. i'm little i'm just i'm a baby yeah <laughs> yeah when I when I get wise and Scott like you, I'll, I I don't know if I'm wise. <laughs> I just also like you know that person's an asshole anyway, right? Before before they even get to even get to urgent. But those care. are the people with the money, you know. Yeah, those yeah. With the money. That's the unfortunate bit of it. Yeah, like I've been I've been trying my hardest. Happen. I've been trying my hardest to. Uh, because I've, I'll just, I've about given up all uh, hope on electoral politics um, as of, as of pretty, pretty, uh, you know, recent. And I've been of the, I've been trying my hardest to stay focused on like local communities and really like invest into the local community and see like, okay, maybe I should go to city council meetings. Maybe I should really do that. And just recently there was a city council meeting here which had a couple hours reserved for people to come in and talk about housing, which is a huge crisis here in Asheville, right? Like the prices are outrageous. There's homeless people, like all kinds of stuff going on. And what the forum turned into was basically just these stakeholders and business people uh, who own businesses downtown coming in, eating up the whole time, talking about how we have to clean up the homeless people with more cops so that it can all be safe. And no one got to talk about rent. No one got to talk about anything. And it's almost like the same. I I'm, I'm, think I'm turning cynical, Scott, but it's almost like the, the same thing, right? It's just replicated on an even smaller level. So at the pool, at the, at the, you know, 
at, at the top of uh, electoral politics, of course, there's assholes and we see them on TV every day. But then even at the micro level of your community, there's even so many damn assholes. Yeah, of course. And, I, and I'm not saying because I mean, I think I think like politics is set. I'm a person that separates these things like, yeah. You know, literature is a is a very blunt like bad instrument if you're attempting to create change and you know i mean i come from i agree you know, labor, labor union people and i mean i think that these are these are very these are very separate uh you know literary aesthetics i'm not sure i'm not sure how much that has and that's the beauty of it it's kind of purposeless right yeah. it's like a, it's like a movie jimmy stewart said in some interview somewhere that that's what are so amazing about movies is you're just given somebody a little moment of time, right? If it's a powerful enough, if it's a powerful enough thing, then that's what they're kind of taking, taking away from it. Yeah. Um, but that's part of the conversation now though, too, where these things are bleeding together yeah. and someone's, someone's trying to make a decision about, you know, how their MFA can impact their community. And it, uh, you know, it's probably a losing battle. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And, just in the it in the is a losing battle, it is. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, and I guess maybe connect to like, but with your teaching though, I think that's something. I think that's something very, very different. I think that is like sort of holy, you know, of of being able to go into. Well, for instance, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go into a classroom. We're going to have a conversation about William Carlos Williams, you know, and and an E.E. E. Cummings poem. I think is what's uh, assigned for tomorrow, and I'm going to hear some far out stuff in relationship to it and people you know like these are poems and being up being upset about it and i think that that is you know a, a holy sort of uh experience that is directly kind of connected to some of those change uh some of those change ideas but yeah yeah i mean it's it's, it's just one of those things totally what uh what when carlos williams did you sign on? oh the red wheelbarrow and this is just to say just because they're all on the same page <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> page 933 so the people only had to flip to only had to flip to those uh those particular pages speaking of far out stuff i taught a class of seventh graders that poem once and uh one of which one, one? Of the the red wheelbarrow and uh one of my students like i had read it and one of my students just raises his hand and he's like i know the answer and I was like, the answer to what? I haven't even asked anything. And, and he goes, yeah, it's about America. And I was like, what? That's and right. Like, You're yeah. wild products of America go crazy. <laughs> I was, that's still to this day one of the most trippy things I think I've ever had is someone like read a poem to someone then being like, oh, I got the answer. I get it. I got it. <laughs> I'm going to go right in here. the, I'm going to, that's inspiration for everything I write. I try and go the opposite direction of that. There is no <laughs> there's, there's some speech in the textbook after, uh, this is just to say where it's William Carlos Williams. I think he's speaking at Harvard in like 1961 or something. And, uh, it, he's talking about how people always ask him what that means. And then he just reads the poem out loud. And at the end in the little speech, he goes, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Which I think is like, yeah, man, it is like, I mean, I'm not a William Carlos Williams person, but uh, having that feeling, having that feeling about your about your work, you know, God that bless you. That you would vocally say it. That you would yeah, vocally yeah, say yeah. it. Right. Yeah. I think God. he even says something. He's like, it's perfect. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> oh, my it's Because his wife had written him a response, but he'd lost the response. That was what part of the discussion or his talk was about at 
Harvard. Anyway, I don't know if William Carlos Williams ever uh, ever heard the Notorious Bird Brothers, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, we brought it full circle here. Well, we're we're like right over time, and I don't want to take y'all's whole evening. Um, but I just wanted to say, uh, Scott, I hear I hear you're a candy candy fiend. Ashley uh, told me you, you like some, some candy. So, are there any? Uh, would you leave the listeners with some good candy that maybe they should try out? Oh, maybe like slept the... on or like yeah. goes goes hidden in the shelves. Oh my God, that's a good question. Right now, my uh, Julie's been getting these. It's like a it's peanut butter, but it's like a peanut like a pretzel filled with peanut butter. It's little mm. uh, pretzel bites, and they're mm. awful. <laughs> but after you've like ate them for like a week. You can't like stop. Like I go in because when I come home from work in the mornings, my nine o'clock class, I always sit down and do my two hours and always get me like five or six of them because they kind of fill you up a little mm -hmm. bit too. And uh, and Julie even told me the other day, she's like, they they taste really good with a little glass of milk. It's like I don't eat mine with milk. I don't do it. I don't do it that way. I eat mine and then I chase it with a piece of Nicorette gum, and that's like the, that's like that's like the perfect. The perfect combination. So maybe people, yeah, if you're listening, go get you some Nicorette and some uh, pretzel bites. I, yeah, I'm anti-pretzel all the way. It don't matter if it's got peanut butter in it, anything. Yeah, I don't pretzels. like pretzels either. My yeah. son is obsessed. He loves pretzels. He can't get enough of pretzels, which I just don't understand because I don't think it's part of our genetic makeup. But maybe it is since I'm going on about these peanut butter pretzel bite so much Evan. that distresses me to hear you say that i just because well for me like it's like night and day like the difference between like a regular pretzel and a pretzel that's combined with chocolate or peanut butter for me <laughs> well here's I can't, I can't stop eating it if it's got <laughs> butter or chocolate in the mix like they make reese's cups now that just have like a whole like pretzel in the middle of it i know yeah. i've seen those yeah yeah. I'm a white. I like the the white chocolate, uh, kind of processed candy sort of. Uh, I guess we've past couple years, everything's white chocolate, like Kit Kat or Twix, yeah. and I love that white chocolate because it makes me think of Jason Taylor. When we were in first grade, I was like, Jason Taylor's my best friend, and Jason Taylor's kind of a heavy boy. And uh, my mom was like, well, why don't you get Jason something for Valentine's Day? And so I got him a white chocolate bunny and uh, and I gave it to him. And he was just like, OK, thank you. But then he opened up the white chocolate bunny and like ate the whole thing in front of me. I guess in my little kid head, I thought that Jason Taylor was going to give me part of that white chocolate bunny. <laughs> he just ate it there the entire time. He just sat there and ate the whole thing. To the point that you could tell he looked like he was sick. You know, he felt like he felt like he was. Oh my! He God. was trying to tell you he loved you and appreciate your gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what had happened is we were in the fifty presidents at Rupert Elementary, and he, I was Grover Cleveland, and he was Chester Arthur. I don't know. I don't know what the first graders were uh, given these presidents from the 1870s but yeah that, so we spent we'd been spending a lot of time together doing our grover cleveland chester arthur act <laughs> so uh, have you ever had a zero bar you know those they're white chocolate but i know what you're talking about those are good those are good Wait, now Scott, every time i eat one how do you feel about birthday cake flavored stuff because that's kind of white chocolate adjacent 
uh, it's all right, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The birthday flavor. I'm not, is a, strange. I'm not like a, I'm not like a birthday cake kind of, kind of guy. When I was a kid, it was like, give me a pack of nerds. You guys remember nerds? Like, give me a pack of nerds, and I would just like shoot these nerds <laughs> and go into and go into like a hyper state, like almost kind of a uh, an LSD type experience. If you got that much like processed sugar going through you, yeah. So yeah, nerds like that would be what I would yeah. have. Yeah. Was, did you have a favorite? Did you did you have a favorite color nerd you, that you wanted? I, well, I liked like the pink kind of flavor, but if it had like the you know because you'd get two different on two sides, mm -hmm. I liked the grape too because the grape yeah. would always have such a strange like sensation if you've been eating like strawberry flavored stuff and then you like start popping that grapes, <laughs> grapes stuff. It's like I love that grape stuff. <laughs> we used to they used to sell that uh the the nerds pack in our uh, elementary school vending machines and uh we in could all vending machine yeah 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 this was yeah i don't know i don't know what their logic behind that was but the the teachers knew that they couldn't give us to that or give us that during school hours we'd have to wait so some days on fridays we would all go sit on the retaining wall and they'd let us use the vending machines and this was when Gatorade had, uh, like, they were at their elite levels of of flavors, <laughs> like mid-90s Gatorade. And so what we would do, we would buy, um, uh, it was like a Kiwi Strawberry Gatorade, if y'all remember that one. That was, like, the best one. And you would get those nerds, and you would just pour them in there. <laughs> and then you'd drink the Gatorade and eat the nerds and sit on the retaining wall and watch the factory across the hill. <laughs> You're yeah. like... Your snack thing reminded me of another Jason Taylor snack store. So we would always get combos at like, you know, our little room where you would, where you could get, and it was like a woman who was selling Margie Hall, who was our kindergarten teacher. She would have big boxes of like salt and vinegar potato chips and combos. And I can remember Jason like Taylor. Pepperoni, like pepperoni pizza combos. This was just like the regular nacho sort okay. of a combo. And Jason Taylor would, take the cheese i may have told this story to you before ashley would take the cheese inside of the combo so he would eat the pretzel part but then he would start combining the cheese until by the end of like lunch period he had this big gigantic ball of cheese that he, that he would, that he would then eat. oh that's grotesque yeah. I can remember being disgusted even in like, you know, fourth or fifth grade. It was like, that's freaking gross, man. Why are you doing that? He sounds like, like a, master, a mastermind. Yeah. Where's he at now? What happened to him? What happened to last, Jason? Last time I heard, so when we were, well, last time I saw Jason personally, I was with my friend Wayne Tiller, and he was taking me home last day of high school and Jason Taylor started like screaming at us and he came running across the parking lot because Wayne had took him to school that morning. And, uh -huh. and Jason Taylor's like, Wayne, wait, wait, wait. And then Wayne stops the car. Because, Jason, because he needed a ride home? No, because oh. Jason Taylor had left that morning in Wayne Taylor's car like this 20 pound bag of weed and so that and so that was the that was the last time that i saw him personally the last story that i heard about jason is that he was skateboarding 
and he was not an athletic dude either. So you can imagine it. He was skateboarding and he was high on nitrous oxide at a Grateful Dead. He decided he wanted to follow the Grateful Dead, I guess, after, after we got out of school. And so he's high on nitrous oxide and he's skateboarding and he fell and he busted out all of the teeth in his mouth. And so Jason Taylor is frozen in time, <laughs> circa 1997, with no teeth. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you think, all right, well, Scott, do you think he really lost all his teeth? No, I, there was somebody there with him who saw it. So he like, he's, but he's high. He's so high, it doesn't even bother him. And he busted, I guess he like took all the top and all of the bottom teeth out. So like, it's like the front of his face is completely without teeth. Does so yeah. Fake, no wonder. Yeah, I guess he must get, he must have fake ones now if he's still alive. That's also a thing in West Virginia. Cause my mom, she's like, I'll tell her like, you remember Melvin Treadway? He was this kid that was like kind of a bad kid, but my mom, she's a school teacher and she loved him. And Melvin came to see her one time and we were like, Melvin, like, he was like 12. And mom was like, where's your mom? And he's like, I, oh, I got dropped off. Like, I'm just walking around. He was just walking around right now for like days at a time. And Boy, so anyway, I was like, mom, wonder what ever happened to Melvin? And she's like, yeah, I wonder what happened. So I Googled him. And then I was like, oh, Melvin passed away in 2018. And uh, then she was like, he had a sister. Uh, what was his sister's name? And I was like, Tanya or whatever her name was. And she's like, she was such a sweet girl. I loved her. I was like, well, she passed away in, tw <laughs> in 2019. Like, it's like the West, it's like these West Virginia things with mom now and kids that, you know, we knew and spent our lives with. And gosh, some awful things happen. But hey, if you were to hear it, if you were to hear it from the Appalachian right, the quote unquote Appalachian writers of our time who were getting the big bucks from capital C capitalism, you wouldn't know that story. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good way to leave it. Um, we can, <laughs> we can, uh, we can only hope that, uh, that all those folks are, are, uh, either enjoying their white chocolate bunnies here or in the hereafter or wherever. Uh, but Ashley and Scott, thank you all for being here. Really appreciate all right, it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I was tickled tonight. So I'd rather go and journey where the diamond crescent's glowing and run across the valley beneath the sacred mountain and wander through the forest.